All right, a powerful video, right? Um, how many of us have been there? I think uh, many, if not most of us. Um, so I don't know if I need to even preach today, right? <laughs> that was moving. Um, but would you go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 5, as we continue our series here on the, the Sermon on the Mount that Pastor Eugene started last two weeks. So go ahead and turn to Matthew 5 with me. All right. So, uh, like I mentioned, we just uh, have begun. I'm Mike, by the way, one of the pastors here. If uh, you're a guest, we just want to welcome you to the service. Uh, so glad that you're here. As I mentioned, we uh, started the Sermon on the Mount series uh, a few weeks ago. And so today we're in week three of the series of what promises to be an exciting journey through Jesus's famous teaching of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Dallas Willard has called this sermon uh, a curriculum for Christ-likeness. And so if you're looking... Uh, for places in scripture to go about what it means to live in God's kingdom, what it means to grow in Christ-likeness, uh, the Sermon on the Mount is a great place to be in, and so glad that we get to be in this uh, section of scripture for the next uh, many weeks. And uh, today we're going to come to the second beatitude. The be beatitudes come from the Latin phrase uh, beatudo, which means blessedness, and um, that phrase, blessed are, we talked about how that implies happy are those, right? But we also know that that word happy, especially in the English language, doesn't quite carry the same forcefulness as maybe it would in the, the ancient languages. And so maybe a better description we talked about would be congratulations when you are in these states. Congratulations. It actually refers to that, that divine joy that, that can only come from God. And so today we're going to look at Matthew 5, 4. And we really try to unpack what Jesus is talking about here. So let's look together. Matthew 5, verse 4, the second beatitude. Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Everybody say comforted. And so just like last week's teaching, we looked at how it's blessed to be poor. Well, this statement, blessed are those who mourn, seems to be an upside down statement in our world, right? I mean, just like no one aspires to be poor, right? We all aspire to, to wealth and prosperity, at least comfort. To be poor, for Jesus to say, blessed are the poor, that's an upside down statement, at least at the, the way the world looks at things. Similarly here, that, that word blessed are those who mourn, it, it's an upside down statement because we all have been there that have mourned or have mourned loss or have been in deep sadness. None of us would say that's such a blessed place to be. In fact, we would think, blessed are the, the happy, blessed are the joyful, blessed are the satisfied. We'd say those are the people that are blessed. But here we, we look at this statement and we have to deal with it. And um, But we live in a world that's uh, so geared towards avoiding sadness, avoiding pain, avoiding sorrow through entertainment, through Netflix, through Hulu, through the constant uh, games we can play on our phone, the constant notifications that distract us from everything. We want to avoid sorrow. We want to avoid sadness as much as we can. But King David captures that feeling. In Psalm 55, he's, he writes this. He says, oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. Yes, I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness. I would hurry to find shelter from the raging wind and the tempest. And so when David was going through extreme sorrow and hardship, he wanted just to fly away. He wanted just to escape. 
And, uh, you know, with this extended pandemic or endemic, whatever we're in, um, many of us just want to escape. But there's nowhere to escape to, right? I mean, uh, COVID's in Hawaii. I'd like to go back to Hawaii. Um, we, we can. And so I think all of us are, are sensing this sort of pressure. But when confronted with this anguish and sorrow, David writes this. He just wants to escape. He just wants to get away from it all. And that's a perfect human sort of feeling, a perfect human response. But here Jesus turns this whole situation on its head by saying, blessed are you if you mourn. So what is he getting at? Well, we want to unpack some of that. Uh, last week, we, we looked at how blessed are the poor in spirit, because until you and I come to a place of where we understand we're spiritually bankrupt, that, that really we have nothing to offer God, there's nothing in us to commend ourselves to God, that we are spiritually poor, until we get to that place, then, then really our relationship with Jesus can only go so far. In fact, we, we will not experience the kingdom until we get to a place where we understand our spiritual bankruptcy. Right. But what does it mean for those to be blessed when they mourn? Well, the, the scriptures talk about different types of mourning throughout the, the Bible. And, and the first is sort of that general sorrow and mourning that you and I have experienced. Many of us have experienced. Maybe it's the loss of a loved one. Maybe it's the loss of a relationship. Maybe it's the loss of a job, a loss of a uh, opportunity or a dream. Whatever that is, we have to grieve those things. And the scriptures talk about that. Abraham mourned the death of his wife, Sarah, when, when she passed. He grieved. He mourned her death. Uh, David, throughout the Psalms, expresses deep sorrow and deep times of extreme loneliness. In Psalm 42, he writes, My tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all day long, where is your God? How many of you have been at a place where it's your tears have been your food day and night? Jesus himself weeps at the womb, at the tomb, rather, of his friend Lazarus. And, and he models for us how important it is to, to grieve and to, to cry even, to, to let those emotions out. Because especially if we've lost someone dear to us, like a loved one, or, or lost something dear to us, we have to grieve that experience. In fact, it's like an escape valve for our souls, right? To, to cry, it, it allows our emotions to, to come out of us so that it doesn't poison our hearts and our souls. And maybe you've known someone that, that couldn't cry at a loss. And, and there's a sense in which it, it continues to poison our hearts when we fail to mourn and to cry and to go through those things. And it's a real biblical way to deal with brokenness and, and heartache. Certainly, God is close to the brokenhearted. Amen? Uh, I can speak to that personally when I, I've gone through losses in my life, that, that God has come alongside and comforted me. Um, I, I love that he has used others to comfort me in those times of, of loss, whether it's a loved one or other pain. He's brought people in my life, even if it's just a word of comfort or flowers sent to the funeral or the house, it's just brought great comfort. And as a pastor, I just so appreciate having seen others comfort one another when we go through mourning and loss. And sometimes we don't do that very well, but when it's been done well, it's just so powerful to see others come alongside and just comfort those that are going through a loss. And I really hope as a community, we can grow in that and get better in that. And there's times we fail in that, but by God's grace, we'll continue to comfort one another. Rejoice with those that are rejoicing, mourn with those that mourn. Amen? Amen. However, this morning, I want to expand this concept of mourning a little bit. 
Um, because I think Jesus is teaching about more than just that general type of mourning in this context. And I think he's talking more about or less about that general sorrow. But he's actually talking about a, a mourning, a sorrow that's linked to repentance. That's linked to repentance. Because if you take verse 3 where he talks about, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the kingdom of God. The, the natural extension of that is this mourning over our sin that leads to the comfort of Christ in our lives. So it's a, it's a hard attitude that's connected to what we learned about last week. And um, we want to look a little bit at that. And, and David, in Psalm 32, he sort of summarizes what, what it's like to have a, a broken and contrite heart that grieves and mourns over sin. He says in Psalm 32, beginning in verse 1, he says, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against him and whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. And so David says, when he kept silent about his sin, when his sin was yet unconfessed, yet unrepented of, that his bones were wasting away. It felt as if his body was wasting away. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. And so ultimately we see here in this beatitude is that this type of blessing is for those who mourn over and are broken over their sin. It's that blessing and comfort that comes from forgiveness, God's forgiveness. Elsewhere, um, David says in Psalm 51, he says, My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So he's talking about that type of sorrow. But again, we live in a culture and a society that really wants nothing to do with sorrow, right? Um, we try to drown it out with being busy. We try to drown it out by, again, we talk about entertainment or a pursuit of success or pursuit of wealth or pursuit of things and accumulating things. And so we live in a society where it's an unspoken belief system that essentially the, the, the maxim is, if it makes me sad, it must be bad, right? If it makes me sad, it must be bad. And sometimes I think our churches, we tend to operate this way and everything's got to be uplifting, right? We've got to have entertaining services. We've got to have things that distract people from maybe they're actually sorrowful. Maybe there's actually sin that needs to be mourned over and repented of. But because our culture, we, we operate under, if it makes me sad, it must be bad. We sort of adopt the culture's way of thinking about sorrow the same way. But there's a kind of sorrow that the Bible says is actually God's will for our lives. There's a kind of sorrow that isn't bad for us. There's a kind of sorrow that, that God actually wants us to experience. And the scriptures speak of this type of sorrow in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 7. Paul, in writing about this type of sorrow, he says this. He says, yet now, if I could get that uh, scripture on the uh, screen, uh, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 7. He says this, he says, yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led to repentance. 
For you became sorrowful as God intended, so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, no condemnation, no shame, no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. And so here, Paul is talking about a sorrow, a sense of brokenness, a sorrow that that brings repentance that leads to salvation. And he says it's a good thing. It doesn't leave any regret, whereas worldly sorrow leads to death. And so the Bible talks about the difference of a godly sorrow versus a worldly sorrow, a worldly mourning. And what what is the difference? Well, the difference is that worldly sorrow is fundamentally self-centered. It, it revolves around uh, our, our pain that sin causes to ourselves rather than the offense and how it dishonors God. Author Philip Hughes describes it this way. He says, it is not sorrow because of the heinousness of sin as rebellion against God, but sorrow because of the painful and unwelcome consequences of sin. Self is a central point. Remember when David repented in Psalm 51, he was able to say, against you, God, only have I a sin. Because he came to a place where he recognized his offense to God, and he was at a, a, a place of brokenness and contriteness, and he was able to receive God's forgiveness and God's grace. And so here's a, a helpful description of the differences between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. If I could have the chart, I kind of want to break it down for us. I, I'm a visual person, and so... I want us to understand the differences between sort of godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow is a willingness to confess sin and acknowledge guilt. Whereas a worldly sorrow is we become defensive and argumentative and we won't acknowledge it. How many of us, when we're we're, uh, criticized by someone, maybe someone we love, somebody points something out to us that isn't the most flattering thing because at the end of the day, we know it's true about our character. We know it's true about maybe how we responded to something. How many of us immediately become defensive, become argumentative, right? I mean, I like to say I'm growing in this, but honestly, when I'm criticized, that's my first response is to be defensive. And that's a sense of worldly sorrow. It's responding in a way that's not willing to to confess and acknowledge our own wrong. Whereas godly sorrow is angry about our own sin, right? We're we're frustrated at our own sinfulness. And we look at ourselves, just like Paul says in Romans 7, he says, "For, for I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. And so Paul, there's that frustration in in which there's still sin in his life. There's still sin in us until we die, right? Until we get to heaven. And Paul's frustrated about that. He's angry about his own inability to do the things that he knows he should do. And so there's a sense of anger over that. Whereas a worldly sorrow is if somebody points out something, right, that, that we did, we get angry at the person that exposed that. That sin. And then it continues on, whereas godly repentance, we, we fear the wrath and discipline of God. A worldly repentance is mainly, you know what, we, we're ashamed of it. We don't like that we've been exposed. We don't like that somebody found out. We don't like that, that it feels uncomfortable for people to know this about us. 
But we're not really broken over the fact that we've offended God, right? That, that it's sin against the Lord. And so uh, John Calvin has said that uh, a true knowledge of God uh, is the love of God combined with the reverence of, of Christ. And so um, a, a godly sorrow, godly repentance ha- has that healthy reverence and love for the Lord. And, and we're more concerned about offending him than being exposed. And I like this one where it's a worldly sorrow is we're not really eager to restore broken relationships. We may feel bad about something that's occurred. Uh, Again, we may feel ashamed about something in our relationships, but uh, a godly sorrow longs to restore that relationship. Lord longs to see it reconciled. And you can look at the rest of the list, but there's a real difference between a godly sorrow and a worldly sorrow sorrow. Worldly sorrow causes us to focus on ourselves and how terrible we are, whereas a godly sorrow is God-centered and leads us to true repentance and leads us to experience how good and gracious of a Savior Jesus is. Amen? Amen. You can take that off, uh, Max. I appreciate that. I'll I'll give you an illustration of uh, worldly sorrow from my own life from back in the early days of my marriage, all right? So, um, Pastor G's laughing because he knows it's always going to lead to something funny, something self-deprecating. But, uh, <laughs> but when I was first a young husband uh, in the early parts of my marriage, I so wanted to be a good husband to my wife, Sumi. Like, I really wanted to be a good, godly Christian husband to my wife. My wife. And um, whenever I fell short of that standard in my own mind, whether it was like getting into an argument doing something that offended her or, or, you know, bickering, arguing, whatever conflicts that would arise in in marriage, I would get so down on myself. I would feel so bad that I'm just this horrible person, this horrible husband, that I was trying to be the standard in my mind, that that the focus became all about me, right? It was was like I fell into self-condemnation. Oh, how can I be this type of husband? How can I be like this? And then I fell into self-pity, and then whatever I did to offend my wife now it got turned back around. It was like I, I was in this wallowing of self-pity. And guess who I wanted to make me feel better? The person I offended. <laughs> right? It's like, does that really make sense? Is that really like in a way helping the relationship? Right? No, I would get so down and then I would expect her to make me feel better for doing something that made her mad. And it was like this vicious cycle. Maybe you can relate. Maybe don't look at someone that you can relate to. That does that, all right? But that was kind of like an example of worldly sorrow because at the end of the day, it wasn't God-centered. It wasn't gospel-centered. It was very self-centered, and it was I was wallowing in my own condemnation and self-pity. And and what really helped that was as I kind of grew in um, the gospel, I began preaching the gospel to myself and recognizing that my identity wasn't in the fact that I was trying to be a good husband. My identity comes from being a son of God, knowing that I'm forgiven by God, knowing that the cross has paid for my sin. Amen. And so I don't, I don't have to wallow in that condemnation. In fact, I can be forgiven of that and I could now be available for my wife and to serve and love her the way she needs to be loved, not as a, a, a man that condemns himself all the time for being a bad husband. Does that make sense? And so that was an example of sort of making that shift from worldly sorrow to godly sorrow. I think a biblical example would be the difference between Peter and Judas. 
you know, both of them betrayed Jesus, right? I mean, Judas more so than Peter. Peter just denied Jesus when he was asked if he knew Christ before the crucifixion. Judas actually led the soldiers to arrest Christ for the 30 pieces of silver. But they both rejected, they both denied Jesus. And look at Judas's response was when he recognized his sin, when he recognized what he had done wrong, he tried to return the money you recall to the, the chief priests. They wouldn't take it and he just threw it in the temple. And then at that point, his worldly sorrow, maybe he was embarrassed, maybe he was ashamed, maybe he was so broken over what he had done Whatever that was, unfortunately, the worldly sorrow led him further from Christ and towards death. Actually, he hung himself. It's a tragic story. I think he had been around Jesus long enough for those three years of ministry to know that had he returned to Christ, that Jesus would have forgiven him his sin. Because that's the love of God. That's the love of Christ. All of us crucified Jesus on the cross because of our sin, and yet he forgives us. He would have forgiven Judas, but Judas allowed his sorrow to lead him away from God. Worldly sorrow that led to death, as Paul says. But Peter, he had a sorrow that was broken over what he had done to reject Jesus. But when Christ came back to him and and called him out those three times, do you still love me? Do you still love me? He experienced the amazing grace and love of Christ that melted his heart that caused him to return and to cause him to be useful to the kingdom. Amen? Amen. And so what a difference, right? Godly sorrow versus worldly sorrow. And so last week, as we looked at um, how we as mature followers of Jesus, we want to grow in our own sense of spiritual poverty and our need for Christ. Well, I would submit to you that to mature spiritually, we have to also have an ever-increasing sense of mourning and sorrow over our own sinfulness. But again, not in a self-condemning way, not in the way in my early days of marriage, but in a way that is not self-focused, but in a way that continues to point us to the cross and our need for grace and our need for forgiveness and our need for comfort that can only come from Jesus. Uh, Martin Luther, the great church reformer, wrote, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, He intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. In other words, all of life for the Christian is a life of repentance. It's not just something we do once when we we, uh, become believers and receive the kingdom. All of life is a life of repentance, turning from sin, trusting in the good news of Jesus. It's not just a one-time experience. It's a daily experience. It's for every moment. Repentance is to... It's a, a posture of our heart that we should abide in, this, this posture of repentance. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. That word comfort here is that uh, word parakaleo. And, and it's the same word for coming alongside to help somebody. So think of the word paramedic, right? It's someone that comes alongside to provide medical assistance. Para means to come alongside. And kaleo means to help. And so it's the same word that Jesus uses for the Holy Spirit, that he promises a helper to come alongside of us. So in our mourning, in our sorrow, in our brokenness, whether it's a loss, whether it's our own sin, God comes alongside of us to help us and to console us and to encourage us and to comfort us and to strengthen us and to restore us. Amen? And he gives us this forgiveness that allows our joy 
to increase. You see, repentance is not this dreary thing. Like sometimes we think of that word repentance as like a bad word almost. You know, we, we picture some guy with a sign on Hollywood Boulevard, right? Yellow sign. Why is it always yellow? I don't know. <laughs> yellow or red, right? It's got to be very bright. And it, it's like, repent or you're going to go to hell. And we, we tend to think repent is such a negative word. But here Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn because they shall be comforted. Repentance leads to comfort. Repentance leads for joy. And I'm reminded of just the prodigal son story in Luke 15, right? The, the son who dishonored his father completely squandered the wealth, completely squandered the inheritance on sin, makes a total mess of his life, comes to the end of himself where he's literally eating the pig slop. You guys know the story well. And, and instead of wallowing in the, the mire, the, the prodigal realizes that he needs to return to the father. And, and before he can even get to the father, the father is running towards him throws a big hug around him, receives him, gives him the robe, gives him the, the shoes on his feet, gives him the ring to signify that he is a son of the father, a son of the house. And, and he restores the prodigal. And he says, bust out the fatted calf. I never had that. I'd love to have a fat calf, right? <laughs> bust it out. We're going to have a party. We're going to celebrate. We're going to have music. We're going to have dancing. We're going we're gonna to party it up. My son who is lost is now found. Because repentance leads to celebration. Repentance leads to joy. Repentance leads to restoration. And if I could have the worship team uh, come back up as we prepare to just pray together. This word uh, makarios is used um, every single time Jesus uses the word blessed, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. And then we're going to go through the other blessings as well in the, the series. But that word that's used is this word Makarios. And uh, that, that Greek word just simply means blessed. Blessed. And um, it's interesting, but in the ancient days, there was an island right off of Greece that was actually called Makarios Island. It was called the Blessed Island because on that island, it was completely self-sufficient. It was so lush, full of natural resources, that if you lived on that island, the Blessed Island, Makarios Island, you didn't have to get off the island for sustenance. You could have everything you needed on that island through the plants and the trees and the vegetation and the waters, everything. It was truly the blessed island because on that island, you didn't have to leave. You didn't have to go anywhere else. You didn't have to uh, leave the island in order to, to find sustenance. You see, we are called to live in such a way that in Christ is our sufficiency. Amen. So that when we get off track and we, we try to find sort of joy, we try to find happiness, we try to find blessing apart from Christ, whether it's in things or in people or in our pursuits, whatever it is that we so easily get off track on, Jesus is reminding us to mourn over that, to mourn over how far from Christ we are, to come back, come back to the blessed island, come back to the Makarios Island, the place of blessing in Jesus Christ. 